We're in Amos, so open your Bible to Amos. Short-term missions are valuable in growing your faith and seeing God's work in you and then through you. By short-term mission, we usually mean a trip to another country for a week or 10 days in order to establish an existing church or to offer aid in the name of Jesus Christ. It offers the uh, average Christian an opportunity to do full-time Christian work for a period of time. Over the years, we've taken folks to the Philippines to do medical missions and support local churches. We've gone to Honduras to do medical missions and building projects by which we preach Jesus. We've smuggled Bibles into communist China, We've taken youth to Mexico. We've gone to support churches in Peru and in Chile. We've even stayed stateside, traveling to Bay St. Louis in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina to offer Christian aid. I'm telling you all this because, in a sense, Amos was a short-term missionary. He did not consider himself to be a prophet by profession the way that we think of guys like Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah. In fact, he says of himself, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son. I'm a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. For Amos, his call and his ministry rested in God's initiative and in his sustaining power. He says in another place, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And so Amos is an average dude from the Central Valley. He's a, he's a herdsman. He's a sycamore farmer, and, and he, he, the Lord calls him, and he says, I want you to go prophesy for a time, especially to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, it's a point we cannot belabor enough. We talk about it a lot, but I, I think you could talk about it every time we get together. God uses ordinary folk. He even says in the New Testament that not many wise and not many noble are called. That way, the glory can rest with him. If you were here, I think, last week when we showed the little interview between Greg Laurie and Chuck Smith, one of the things Chuck said that he absolutely believes is that he's inspired so many people to go into the ministry because they look at him and think, I could do that. It's very simple. So many men inspire people or seek to inspire people, but when you're done listening to them, you think, wow, that guy is brilliant. How did that guy come up with that stuff? And then you end up thinking, I could never do that. I just don't, I don't have the education. I don't have the background. I, I, I would fail if I had to do that. And then the truth is, when you listen to Pastor Chuck, you think, Really? I could do that. In fact, I do believe all that. And, but it's fantastic because there's an anointing of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's what Amos is talking about in his ministry. He says, hey, I'm just a herdsman. I'm just a, a guy that tends trees, but the Lord sent me to preach. And God really does want to use you right now, meaning right where you are at without any further education or training. Not to say you won't get more of both or that they're, in, they're not valuable in some sphere, but it isn't needed for you to be used because the lion has roared, the Lord God has spoken. One thing I'd add, since God wants to use everyday average believers, maybe we should start thinking of moments in our day as short-term missions excursions, those times when we're being sensitive to God the Holy Spirit and he encourages us to go a certain way or say a certain thing or strike up a certain conversation. And so you think, well, I'll never go on a short-term mission trip. You can go on one every day. 
just, you know, be sensitive to the Lord and, and turn left when he says to turn left and talk to who he says to talk to and take a 10-minute missions trip with the Lord. Now, we're quick starting the minor prophets. We're taking each book and looking at it as a whole. Neither they nor their inspired messages were minor. They're called minor only because their books are far shorter than the major prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So brief were their writings that all 12 were written on a single scroll. And those writings were then commonly known as the Book of the Twelve or just the Twelve. Although he was from the southern kingdom of Judah, Amos was called primarily to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. This is during the time of the split kingdom, or as Wilmington calls it, the chaotic kingdom stage, when uh, Israel had ten tribes to the north and Judah had two tribes to the south. Therefore, he was not very welcome in northern territory, but he nevertheless went and stood his ground on the word of God. His prophecies were not confined to the nations of Judah and Israel. He also spoke out against the surrounding Gentile nations. God sent Amos to Bethel. It was the religious center of the kingdom of Israel at the time to preach a series of prophetic messages. After the two kingdoms split, people in the north were still going down to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple. And so the kings in the north set up uh, worship at Bethel, and it essentially was idol worship so that they could keep the people there. Each message that Amos uh, speaks to a nation begins with the same words. You see them eight times in chapters 1 and 2. They are these words. He says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away punishment. It's really an expression that's a Jewish way of saying an indefinite number that has finally come to an end. In other words, words, they had done this an awful lot and now God's long-suffering was coming to an end. Each time you read these words, Amos names a nation that God was judging for their sins. And as I said, there are eight nations in all. The first six nations he addressed were the nations that surrounded God's people, Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. The final two were the nations God's people were the subjects of, Judah and Israel. The six Gentile nations were disobeying what we would call the natural law. They were ignoring their conscience. Uh, They went beyond the boundaries that God had set for them. You know, God raises up nations and he tears down nations and he he, um, authorizes governments even though they are not Christian or godly governments. And he uh, is concerned about the nations and how they treat people. And so these Gentile nations are coming to times of judgment. Syria, represented in Amos by using the word Damascus, the capital city, It was going to be judged because of its excessive cruelty when they conquered Gilead. (laughs) Gilead was the area east of Jordan occupied by the Jewish tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. So God had raised them up as his tool to discipline his people on that side of the Jordan, but they went beyond what they ought to have done. They were excessively cruel, and for that, God was going to hold them accountable. Philistia had invaded Israel and sold some of the Jews as slaves, again, beyond what God had called them to do. Phoenicia, who we would know as Tyre, uh, the capital city, also sold Jews as slaves, but her sin was greater in that she had broken a treaty that she had with Israel at the same time. 
Edom would be punished for its unrelenting hatred of the Jews. Edom, the descendants of Esau, always giving the Jews a hard time. The nation of Ammon had committed terrible atrocities against the Jews, such as ripping open pregnant women with their swords when they conquered them. And so God would hold them accountable. And Moab, too, had committed atrocities, such as desecrating the tombs of certain kings. So far, so good. God would judge Israel's neighbors for their cruelties. You know, if you're a Jew, you're liking this. You know, that the the nations are going to come under God's judgments. It's about time. But keep listening, Israel. God would not overlook your sins either. Turning to his own people in chapter 2, God would judge Judah. Let's read verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. He says, For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four... I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Now we know this judgment was carried out by Nebuchadnezzar in his three successive invasions of Jerusalem in the 6th century BC. We read all about it in the book of Jeremiah, the major prophet Jeremiah. And so the southern kingdom of Judah lasted longer than the northern kingdom of uh, Israel by about 100 plus years. Uh, But essentially God did send the fire. uh, at, At one point, Nebuchadnezzar burned everything down. God would also judge Israel, and that's taken up beginning in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four... I will not turn away its punishment. And again, remember, in other words, my long suffering has come to an end because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. And so just a quick look at some of the things that the Lord was uh, talking about here uh, in terms of judgment. You think, well, what do you mean he's going to judge the nation? He's, you know, his long-suffering ends. What, what exactly were they doing? Well, we read in one section Israel had perverted justice by accepting bribes. Uh, and that's something that God isn't into. He doesn't like that kind of government where people can be bought off. Uh, he wants your yes to be yes and your no to be no and, and you to be a person of integrity. They had sold the poor into slavery, uh, something they were not supposed to do. You, you know, Israel 
a lot of times people say, oh, well, Israel had slavery. Well, it was, a, it was more like indentured servitude. It was poor people could work off their debt. And then at the end of seven years, they were set free. And then they had the option of staying with that master as a uh, bond servant or of going free. And so, I mean, it was a very different system than, say, American slavery or, or the slave trade in the world today. I'm not saying it's good or that I want to return to it. Uh, you know, or anything like that, but uh, it, it's very different. But they had perverted that by actually selling their poor into real slavery rather than uh, obeying the word of God. Fathers and sons were having sex with the same woman, probably prostitutes, but, you know, uh, it, it was a perversion. They lounged in stolen clothing from their debtors while they attended their religious feasts. And so people owed them money. It was like an extortion racket. And they would say, well, you can't pay me, but I'll take your, I'll take your finest clothing. Of course, clothing was at a premium in that kind of a culture. People didn't have a lot of clothes, if, if you know what I mean. They didn't have a closet full of clothes. I don't know how I got so many T-shirts. I have T-shirts. I can't fit the amount of T-shirts I have anymore. I don't know. I'm not proud of it. I'm kind of, I, but then I look at them and I thought, well, I like this T-shirt. Oh, that's a great shirt. What is this? I didn't even know I had this T-shirt. And I mean, I have two closets full of t-shirts and I don't know what to do with them. But in those days, people, they had just a few garments. And so if they couldn't pay this, well, well, we'll take your, we'll take your finest garment. And then they would put that on and they would go to their religious festival and offer their sacrifices as if they weren't treating people poorly. They offered sacrifices of wine that had been purchased with stolen money. And so that's... uh, and they tempted the Nazarites to drink wine. And they were, seemed to be proud of it. It seemed to be a, a cultural thing that they were going through. I mean, hey, let's, you guys know any Nazarites who've taken a vow not to drink? Let's get them over and see if we can get them to drink some wine. Won't that be a hoot? They can you know, nullify their Nazarite vow. They, they just were losing it spiritually, obviously. When God says he's weighed down... As a cart full of sheaves, there's a lot of different, uh, perhaps, interpretations we could have of that. One of the things it means is that his people had put him in a tight spot. Because if God is going to judge the Gentile nations who violate natural law, how much more will he have to judge his own nation that has his written law? And so you can't applaud for God judging the Gentiles who are doing these cruel things, who have the witness of conscience and creation, but don't have a strong witness you know, from the word of God and then ignore what your own people are doing. And so God says, yeah, you've weighed me down. You've put me in a tight spot. And just the idea, not that we can in any way ever diminish the glory of God or God himself or the nature of God or anything like that. I just want to you know, preface it in case I say something that you think is weird. But God says, in a sense, you've burdened me. It's a burden that you've put on me when I want to bless you. We just, I guess we don't believe that God wants to bless us. And then we don't think he's doing it the right way or the way we want because, you know, real blessings, real change, real transformation, things of the spirit take time. They're inexplicable. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They don't, they don't just happen. God has to set up a lot of different things and relationships and places and times and meetings and appointments in order to develop his fruit in our lives. And so we don't see 
Usually we don't see the immediate happiness that we want and we assume that happiness equals blessing and God's not blessing us so then we go our own way and do our own thing. When God says, no, I, I want to bless you and you've burdened me because of these things. This judgment God is talking about here through Amos is only 30 years away from them. In a mere 30 years, the northern kingdom would be overrun by the Assyrian Empire and taken into a captivity from which they would not recover from. It was uh, devastating and terrible. Chapters 3 through 6 are three sermons addressed to Judah and Israel. God was giving them one final warning. Verse 6 of a, uh, chapter 3, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there's a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And so the Lord says, you know, there, trumpets were used for all kinds of different things, and, and he's talking about the kind of trumpet that's blown from the watchtower that alerts you that danger is coming and invasion is coming. He says, if there's a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? We need to be careful that we don't expand this to believe that God brings every calamity on the earth. The Old Testament Jews were, uh, they were promised physical blessing for obedience and physical bummers for disobedience is the best way I can put it. It was a very kind of material thing. And, and so if their crops were failing and locusts were eating their crops and the water was polluted and, you know, earthquakes were happening and there were calamities, it was a sign, it was a sign that God was judging them. But it's not to say that God brings today every calamity. In fact, we'll get to that in the Gospel of Matthew where they ask Jesus some questions about that and he says, he says, hey, an enemy has done this. And so you want to be careful not to attribute to God every terrible thing that happens to people. And, and so this is a warning. He's saying, hey, people pay attention to trumpets and they, they should notice the calamities and, and, and then there are the prophets. In addition to all of this other stuff, he had sent them prophets like Amos who were saying, guys, you know, get a handle on this. You, you can't survive disobeying God like this. They would not repent. So in chapter 4, verse 12, we read, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's something you never want to hear said. I mean, in, in a movie, that's always bad. <laughs> right? I mean, anytime, I can't think of a movie right now, but anybody, anybody says, hey, get ready to meet your maker. I mean, you're about to get shot in the head. Something bad's going to happen. And so the Lord says, yeah, that's it. You won't repent, so get ready. I, I'm, I'm going to meet you in a different way. After this final warning, God issues another final warning. I love God. He says in verse 4 of chapter 5, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. Uh, he made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. 
They hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards. You'll not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Actually, that's a third warning. And so he warns them. He says, prepare to meet your God. Then he says, well, how about you seek me and live? And then he says, I'm going to judge you guys. And then he says, well, maybe you should seek me and live. And maybe this, even in verse 15, it could even be a fourth warning. Maybe grace will prevail. I mean, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a bedrock principle. Even people who say, oh, in the Old Testament, you know, God was mean and mad and and he's always judging people. Well, they deserved it. But he let it go, and he let it go, and he let it go, and he said, just turn to me. I want to bless you. You won't? Okay, I'm going to have to judge you. But if you just turn to me. And sooner or later, you know, I mean, I've said this before, and I mean it in the nicest way possible. In a way, God is, a, is bad as an example for parenting. He's the guy that counts to 10. Don't you, you, you and I make fun of that in the store, don't we? You know, you're, in, you're at Target or at some store. How about, well, we're at, let's go to McDonald's. You're at McDonald's, and so we have a contingent from McDonald's here. You're at McDonald's, and some kid is running around, throwing ice, you know, doing all kinds of things, and the mom is oblivious, and every now and then she goes, stop that. Stop it. Or you'll never watch television again as long as you live. And the kid, you know, you know. And then they start counting. I've never heard anybody go past 10, but 10's too, it's nine too many, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, there's, it's like one, and uh, it's crazy. And so, but God does that. He says, that's it, I'm done, you're judged, unless you seek me, and then I'll, well, okay, that's it, you're done, you're toast. But if you seek me, well, okay, you're not gonna do that, so forget about it. And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's the way he is. Now, I like simple illustrations of spiritual truth. In the last three chapters of Amos, the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel are compared to workers on a wall and farmers in a field whose work was being reviewed so that God could reward their faithfulness and their fruitfulness. Chapter 7, the Jews are portrayed as workers on a wall upon God's foundation. God reviewed their work by applying a spiritual plumb line to the wall. It was out of plumb So instead of a reward for faithfulness, they were going to suffer loss. In chapter 8, the Jews are portrayed as farmers in God's field. They produced a basket of summer fruit. God reviews their work by testing the fruit. It was overripe and rotten. So instead of a reward for fruitfulness, they were going to suffer loss. It sounds bleak. And for the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel, it was bleak. Because the loss they would suffer was the destruction of their nation at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. And these, you know, these were brutal times, brutal assaults. There was nothing, there was no Geneva Convention. There was just the Assyrians. And, you know, these guys, I don't know, they just, they seem to have a lot of pent-up frustration and rage. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, especially if there was a siege involved. I mean, if you're a... You're a hardcore Assyrian soldier. You signed up to kill people. 
That's all you want to do is kill people for Assyria. And then you have to sit outside city walls for months and years at a time just itching to kill somebody. And then finally they break through the walls or somebody lets you in and you just go to town. My favorite thing about the Assyrians in explaining how vicious they were was that the captives, the people they let live, they'd gather them together and they'd put enormous fish hooks through their jaw and, and tie them together and then drag them off to Assyria. Uh, it, it, it hurt. It was painful. It was, it was terrible. And so this is what the Lord is talking about. And, and, you know, when you're a nation and you get judged, it's, it's rough because you get judged by other nations and usually it involves some kind of bitter warfare. All was not lost. As Amos closed his book, he spoke of a future hope for the Jews when God would establish them on the earth in their land. In the next to the last verse of the book, God said, this is verse 14 of chapter 9, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. Though they had failed as workers on God's foundation, as farmers in his field, he would restore them in the future. They would build and plant with success and enjoy God's promised reward. And of course, we know uh, prophetically, we're looking forward past the time of the Great Tribulation to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. I want to suggest to you that you and I find ourselves in similar circumstances, even though it's 27 centuries since Amos preached this series of messages. You and I as believers are surrounded by nations that are ignoring their conscience. And in some cases, it's our own nation that we're surrounded by because you and I as believers are the subjects of what the Apostle Peter called a holy nation, his own special people who were once not a people but are now the people of God. And so we, the church, if you're a Christian, you're a member of the church, are God's holy nation surrounded by other nations, including the United States. I read something this week about our place within our own nation. The comment was, God doesn't point his finger at the White House, he points it at his house, meaning the church. Now, in light of what Amos said, I'd have to say that the Lord points his finger at the White House and he points it at his house because God does judge nations. There's no doubt about it. Is he judging the United States? I don't know. And I'm not going to go on. Uh, We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Our point is to say, let's be compassionate. Let's love people. If there's a tornado, if there's a hurricane, if there's a flood, if, if whatever there is, let's go in there with the love of Jesus Christ and share Christ with people. Let's take it as an opportunity, and we'll find out if we're under judgment or not. Uh, but I do know that the, the Lord judges the church, in, in a sense, that judgment begins at the house of God. And so what we would say, because Peter says, hey, we're a holy nation, his own special people, As the church, we must ask ourselves, are we holy? We are in the sense that holy means set apart. By our very membership in the church, by being born again, we have been set apart for the Lord and are by definition holy. But we're also expected to pursue holiness in our lives. That is the practical daily holiness of saying yes to God and no to sin. That's a simple definition, I guess, of what we're talking about. 
Holiness is, is agreeing with God and doing what God says to do instead of what I want to do. We're living through a time when many, and it's almost getting to be the majority of professing believers are choosing to live in sin. They, they don't find themselves stumbling or uh, caught up. They, they're making it as a choice. Probably the easiest example, I'm only using this because it is the easiest example, it's one that touches a lot of our lives and and all, but uh, where you see this the most is with marriage and divorce and remarriage and sexual sin, that whole area of our lives. There seems to be no fear of God among professed Christians when it comes to divorcing without biblical grounds and in having sex outside of marriage. It's it's rampant. I've talked to people over the last few years who like, basically it's, so what? Uh, I'm a Christian and I'm going to do this. And God, they don't even think that they need God. It's not even a thing where they're saying I'm sinning so that grace might abound. They're just saying, you know, of course I'm a Christian and, and I'm doing this and I think God is into it. They think God is actually into it and blessing it. And Used to be you could read the word to people and, and say, you know, these words, they're not really hard to understand. They go, yeah, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, not me. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work for me. We used to joke, I think it was Jerry Falwell. Remember Jerry Falwell? He used to say, it's the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. Remember that? It's cute. But anymore, people think that God's word is a suggestion box. You want to live a happy life, do this. I'm not really happy doing that. I tried that. That's the whole marriage thing, and it's not working really. The sex in marriage, that's not really working for me. I'm going to try this other thing and, and be with Jesus too. Ooh. Let's us pursue holiness as defined and described by our loving God and Father because he really does know what's best. And wait, wait for the lasting fruit. Wait for the lasting fruit. You know, it... Happiness comes and goes. As a lot of pastors say, happiness depends on happenings. But joy is a settled principle that you can know, and and, uh, it beats up happiness every time. Amen? All right, praise the Lord.